Welcome to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Our show today is Planetary Factory on logistics and the violence of market competition. Our only song today is John Coltrane's Transition, from the album of the same name, recorded in 1965 but released posthumously in 1970. Transition is surely a theme for our economic, ecological, and geopolitical future. Our conversation with Jasper Burns, recorded in May of last year, might be called a delayed part two, or even part three, as it features a previous guest extending the parameters of a previous conversation, and begins with a consideration of the artist, activist, and social and political critic, photographer, and filmmaker, Alan Sekula, who was the subject of another interchange conversation. Sekula was a critic of capitalism and an influential theorist of documentary photography and photojournalism. And yes, we'll supply links to these other programs on our webpage. The discussion ranges from Sekula's political art to the Oakland port blockades and Occupy Oakland, of which Burns was an integral organizer, facing the question of how to initiate a general strike in a moment in which organized labor is not the power it once was. Burns's work seeks to understand the best ways to disrupt the distribution systems that supply us with products to consume while also describing the inefficiencies and waste of resources, human and material, that spring from the singular efficiency of reducing shipping costs from capitalists. I promise we'll unpack all that in the show. Jasper Burns is managing editor of Commune Magazine and the author of The Work of Art in the Age of Deindustrialization, and two books of poetry, We Are Nothing and So Can You, and Stars Down. We begin with Alan Sekula's documentary essay film, Made with Noah Birch, The Forgotten Space, which examines the world surrounding and supporting the capital flows via containerization of product distribution by oceans and seas and through harbors and ports. And now, Planetary Factory with Jasper Burns on Interchange on WFHB. I had, uh, I'll give you a little bit of an introduction to simply my own interest, which was is, um, recent and accidental, never having heard of uh, Alan Sekula before. Uh, I had read a review of The Forgotten Space in um, uh, on Jonathan Rosenbaum's uh, website, where he, of course, made it sound fantastic and interesting, and um, so that's how I started. And then I just went looking for stuff about him and it's, there's a lot and it's annoying to me as a, a person who likes to find out things, how many things I don't know. Um, mm-hmm. And, and I have so much that I don't know about and so much that's great that I don't know about is frustrating, but at the same time, it's a new discovery, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's not the, the forgotten spaces yet. Yeah, it's a fantastic film. It's one of my you know, favorite films uh, of all time. And I think it's just, you know, it's, it's one of the great documentary films, but it's not easy to see, right? And there's something about the distribution of the art film um, that, you know, makes it 
hard to see. Mm. Um, it's easy to get your hands on a copy. I mean, I have a bootleg copy and um, I've shared that and other people share those copies, you know, and I'm sure uh, Sakul is fine with that. But, um, you know, it's not it's not as easy to see as, you know, other kinds of films or other TV shows or something like that. Um, mm. There's a kind of restriction of its circulation that is probably has to do with you know it, it, it coming out of the art world mm-hmm, mm-hmm. well uh, uh distribution obviously one of our conversation points uh, at the same time it's um it's uh, a film that seems to sort of span most of his work in terms of its um uh, maritime practice i suppose uh, looking at right. the way ports operate and people operate within ports and the world around ports and what mm-hmm. ports hide and what they reveal things of that nature uh can you do you mind describing a little bit the film uh sure the so so the film um as i remember it mm-hmm. you know it was an investigation of the nature of the maritime space um which he calls the forgotten space um that starts from the port of Los Angeles and kind of traces various connections um, from there and ends up kind of spanning the world, um, looking at the kind of uh, life on uh, these container ships and, uh, and, and, and documenting the kind of experiences of the uh, Filipino crew that's on this ship um, and, you know, ends up in, in Hong Kong and uh, Rotterdam and it goes sort of around the world from port to port, tracing this kind of network, um, which is a, you know, a forgotten aspect of the, the capitalist world system. Um, and, you know, for him, it's, 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 it's an investigation of the forgotten space that, that aims to make visible uh, these kinds of supply chains and networks of trade and transport, you know, that keep the world afloat. And, you know, he, it's, if I understand his aim correctly, it's an attempt to uh, counter the the narratives of the new economy uh, and the kind of digital world in which everything is assumed to kind of move at lightning speed and be immaterial. And he wants to point to this this kind of very material world, a world where um, people are moving very, very heavy goods uh, and dealing with greasy machines um, and exposing themselves and their bodies to danger. Uh, and 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 if I understand his aim, his point is to is is to demonstrate how um, the lightning fast uh, whirring of information around the globe depends upon this other, much more slow moving set of kind of uh, material uh, transport. It's a really important film. It's a, you know it's structurally very interesting the way that it kind of moves. Uh, it's it is a fascinating film, and you know we see film now uh, in the in the comfort of our homes more than anywhere else, probably uh, trying to understand how one comes to view anything in as we're awash in film, awash in uh, uh, television, awash in uh, entertainment, and then to spend time. Uh, in a sense, being in a space of study, uh, a space of discovery and reflection. I don't know how many people spend time doing these kinds of things. So the film, um, the I, I don't know that I'd call it an art film. I, I suppose it is. It has to be categorized in some sense like that. Um, a political film as much as anything else, uh, you know, a film to try to, as you say, put maybe put flesh back on what we think of as a, a, a virtual a space of, of of goods transportation. Yeah, it's, in some ways, it you know it, it owes something to the essay film of the 1960s and 1970s. You know, I'm thinking of some of the films that um, 
Godard made in the seventies or, or, you know, Chris Marker, uh, that, that sort of, um, type of film, but it's much, you know, it's not, it's not a particularly difficult or experimental film. I think it's, you know, highly watchable. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, just about anybody could sit down and watch it uh, and find it compelling, uh, and, you know, get a lot out of it. That's, that's what I think is one of its powers is it has this, um, you know, uh, ease to it, right? It's not, it, you know, it, it, its use of form is interesting, but it's not rebarbative. Mm-hmm. It's not, you know, it's, it's not trying to be um, difficult and it, it's not, you know, it's not trying to create opacity. Um, it's, you know, it's trying to teach in a way hmm. uh, and and uncover uh, this space. So it's, it's thoughtful in the way that it moves, but I don't, you know, I don't find it difficult. You know, as somebody who enjoys a, a difficult film sometimes, I don't I don't think that, that this one counts. This is Interchange on WFHB. Our show is Planetary Factory on logistics and the violence of market competition with Jasper Burns. Activist, essayist, poet, and managing editor of Commune magazine, Burns points out that the hidden nature of container capitalism has alienated even the revolutionary project. What now can be seen and identified as the targets of disruption and radical change? The, the question I guess I'd have for you uh, is, is, you know, where, how did you come to Sekula's work? I assume that the Forgotten Space is not uh, the first thing you you encountered. It's a relatively late piece in his uh, career. He's not known as a filmmaker. I suppose he's primarily known as a photographer and essayist. He was, I believe, a sculptor at one time as well. Of course, has done many, many things. Um, how did you first encounter his work? As a graduate student, I was taking a course, uh, and we, it was a course basically on 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 kind of documentary uh, art and writing. Uh, and we read and looked at Fish Story in that class, alongside you know books like Let Us Now Praise Famous Men and um, you know Mary Kelly's Postpartum Document. So it was a kind of investigation of documentary art and writing, and a lot of projects that kind of spanned both modes that had a kind of textual element and then also sometimes a photographic photo essays or, um, you know, or film uh, that that had a kind of writerly component. I didn't really investigate his work that deeply at that moment. And then and then a couple of years later, I in the context of organizing, um, you know, in, in Occupy Oakland and being involved in these port blockades, I watched The Forgotten Space. Um, and the, the movie just really, you know, uh, struck a deep chord with what I was thinking about. And he seemed to be one of the most kind of insightful writers about this maritime space and about logistics and about the sea. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was at that point that I, that I went back and, you know, really carefully looked at all of his earlier work. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, think, <laughs> I think that's the story. I might have actually seen Forgotten Space before I started organizing uh, before I, before the port blockade, mm-hmm. of but I can't, uh, you know, the, the two things go together, but it was around that time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, the, um, tell us a little bit about that work that you did, uh, with, uh, the port blockade and why you got involved yeah. in that. Well, I mean, I was, I was a big part of Occupy Oakland or I was, you know, one of many people who was involved in that. And it was a very, you know, significant and lively space, um, and, you know, what happened is that the, the city of Oakland, after, you know, three weeks, evicted the, the Occupy Oakland camp, which was one of the most, you know, boisterous uh, and autonomous and kind of freewheeling of the Occupies in the country. I mean, it was really 
quite in a kind of impressive um, zone. Uh, and, you know, finally, after, you know, some deliberation, they decided to evict the camp and they did so incredibly violently, you know, uh, beating people um, and, and trampling down, uh, you know, these, <laughs> these spaces that we had dedicated to care for each other, you know, like the child care center and then, you know, the kind of medic uh, center and the, the kitchen. Um, and they just, you know, just really violently and uh, vindictively destroyed these things. And I think they were, the police were very, very angry because we didn't let them come into the camp. We, you know, we, we created a kind of a zone that was um, free of police uh, interference. And um, so, you know, they did that and it provoked a really powerful reaction uh, from, you know, people in the city and thousands of people showed up. Um, to kind of fight their way back into the park where we were, um, you know, surge past the police lines. And, you know, then there were thousands of people that had taken back this park. Um, and, you know, almost kind of spontaneously, some people that had had this idea of, of doing a kind of general strike, um, we, had a, we had a kind of massive referendum on whether we were going to strike um, without really thinking about what that meant. And, and, you know, the crowd was unanimously in favor of striking, you know, there's no way to get real to do a real count in that moment. But it was clearly, you know, over 95 percent of the people there wanted to to do this thing, a strike. Now, of course, and we, you know, we and we voted to do it in a week from that day. So this was October 25th, and we were going to do it on November 2nd or something like that. So, um, and uh, you know, gave us a week to organize a strike. And of course, you know, labor is not the the power that it once was. So people were thinking about you know how to to how to strike. Um, when people aren't sort of organized uh, in their workplaces and how to kind of shut down the economy uh, in a place like Oakland. And, and, you know, what people decided to do with the collaboration of the um, longshoremen at the, at the Port of Oakland, which is, you know, one of the biggest ports in the United States, um, is to, you know, shut down the port, which had been done before, um, you know, a few times. And so, we you know, uh, so 40,000 people, you know, marched to the, to the port and shut it down for the day. Um, on the day of the general strike, in, in addition to kind of shutting down most of the businesses in the downtown area. Uh, and that was what constituted a, a strike. Um, and, you know, it was that, it was that moment that, that initiated this uh, process of thinking about logistics and about the transformation of the capitalist economy, um, and also how that had kind of changed the way uh, that people struggle, the way that people make their power felt, um, how they find ways to be effective, which, you know, in my argument, uh, has really changed over the last 40 and 50 years. And we need to kind of reflect on that. So, mm-hmm. you know, so, and so Sakula is somebody I think who, who really registers these changes. Mm-hmm. It's time for a break and Coltrane continues with Transition, recorded in 1965. When we come back, we'll hear a bit from Alan Sakula's essay that details a suppression of stink on harbors and ports. Jasper Burns continues as our guest. Stay with us.
Welcome back to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Our show is a conversation with Jasper Burns, poet, activist, organizer, and managing editor of Commune Magazine. We move from Alan Sekula's fish story to Burns' essay, Logistics, Counter-Logistics, and the Communist Prospect, which grounds capitalist expansion in the logistics of military campaigns. What one sees in a harbor is the concrete movement of goods. This movement can be explained in its totality only through recourse to abstraction. Marx tells us this, even if no one is listening anymore. If the stock market is the site in which the abstract character of money rules, the harbor is the site in which material goods appear in bulk, in the very flux of exchange. Use values slide by in the channel. The ark is no longer a bestiary, but an encyclopedia of trade and industry. This is the reason for the antique mercantilist charm of harbors. But the more regularized, literally containerized, the movement of goods in harbors, that is, the more rationalized and automated, the more the harbor comes to resemble the stock market. A crucial phenomenological point here is the suppression of smell. Goods that once reeked, guano, gypsum, steamed tuna, hemp, molasses, now flow or are boxed. The boxes, viewed in vertical elevation, have the proportions of slightly elongated banknotes. The contents are anonymous. Electric components, the worldly belongings of military dependents, cocaine, scrap paper, who could know? Hidden behind the corrugated sheet steel walls emblazoned with the logos of the global shipping corporations. Evergreen, Matson, American President, Mitsui, Hanjin, Hyundai. Mm-hmm. That's that, that pretty much opens it up, right? That says this, this is a thing that we used to sort of be able to see harbors and ports. You could see goods coming in and out. You, if you reflect on Moby Dick, you sort of begin at the beginning with, with the idea of, you know, taking stock of what's going onto the ship, what's coming off the ship. Uh, these kinds of things are, are in some ways visible, even as the ship goes to sea and becomes invisible. There still is in the harbor, the sights of what you're shipping and what's coming in. And now that's not the case anymore. But this leads me into your your particular work, uh, the piece that's published in EndNotes, uh, Logistics, Counter-Logistics, and the Communist Prospect, uh, which struck me, I actually you know read this little bit of Sekula after reading your, your piece and after having seen uh, The Forgotten Space. And one thing that, you know, it just... It's background noise logistics for most of us, and that's part of its part of its hiddenness, you know, part of its forgottenness, and and part of how it has power too, right? So logistics is a is is a history, and it's we have to learn the history of logistics to understand how the capitalist uh, economy has morphed over time. Absolutely, yeah, and the, the this this passage is just so brilliant, and um, you know. I, I was actually just reading it this morning as I was thinking about Sekula. Um, and he's such an incredible writer. Uh, and he brings such a kind of poetic and analytical skill to his writing that um, it's really astounding. And, you know, I, I wasn't thinking of this passage when I wrote something very similar in logistics, counter logistics and the communist prospect. But I must have been right because I say something very similar. I say that the derivative, you know, is the flip side of the container. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and and it's very true, right? The stock market and um, the uh, 
support are these these kind of two sides of the global um, circulation of, on the one hand, money, and on the other hand, goods, right? So you sort of imagine it as this kind of cycle, right? Goods are, you know, there's a, there's a money market, right, which, which makes sure that kind of factories get their um, – the factors that they need for production. Um, and so, you know, they're, they're sort of appealing for credit so that they can go, you know, pay for labor and buy factories and things like that. And the stock market sort of handles that that kind of money market. Um, and that's an input to the factory. But then on the other side, the goods come out of the factory and they have to get sold and then they go to the port, right? And so the port and the stock market are sort of on opposite ends of this kind of circulation. And then after they're sold, right, the money gets, you know, goes into the credit market and then becomes credit for the, you know, for the factories and, and the cycle is continued, mm-hmm. right? So there are two, there's sort of two sides of, um, of circulation, right? Circulation uh, as it enters the factory and circulation as it exits the factory. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, so they, they really do need to be seen together. Of course, there's an aspect of the stock market that, that does deal with um, the products of, you know, farms and factories, and that's the commodities market, which is sort of the oldest aspect of, you know, of um, the financial world, right? And in, in many ways, capitalism sort of emerges out of um, this matrix, which in, in which the first capitalists are um, both uh, financiers or creditors and traders, mm-hmm. right? They're, they're often the same people. Um, and they're people who have access to a lot of money and they're able to kind of buy and sell goods and they're also able to make loans, right? And those are the first people who sort of begin to create the capitalist um you know, begin to create the capitalist economy. It doesn't really become capitalism until they take over the factory and remake it mm-hmm. um, more efficiently. But, you know, these are almost, um, these are the sort of, uh, the, the kind of proto forms of capital mm-hmm. um, and merchant capital. This is Interchange on WFHB. Our show is Planetary Factory on logistics and the violence of market competition with Jasper Burns. Activist, essayist, poet, and managing editor of Commune magazine, Burns points out that the hidden nature of container capitalism has alienated even the revolutionary project. What now can be seen and identified as the targets of disruption and radical change? Let's sort of talk about the uh, the work you're trying to do in this particular piece, which is, uh, on one hand, to describe a kind of history of uh, logistics and the ways in which we might think about disrupting logistics, but to, in order to disrupt it, we have to have a firm sense of what it is, you know, what it, what's entailed in it, and how much it's um, it's the very air we breathe at this point in many ways. So, can you give us a brief history of logistics and containerism? I suppose as well. So, the logistics is a term that has had a number of meanings for a very long time. It originates as a as a military uh, term and a military concept, and really the only people who cared about logistics for a long time until you know after 1945 were um, kind of military engineers and military planners who you know understood that to win an expeditionary war, you have to be able to control um, you know the supply of your army. And, um, you know, analysis of kind of failed expeditionary wars always shows that the reason they were defeated is not because they were, you know, killed by the enemy, but simply that their their supply chains failed. Right. This is true of Napoleon and Russia and, you know, probably true of Hitler 
um, you know, Alexander the Great. You can look at all of these kinds of old expeditionary campaigns and where they were successful, they were able to procure resources for their armies and transport them efficiently. And where they failed, they, they, they simply weren't able to do that and they succumbed to, uh, you know, famine and, and sickness, etc. So um, after World War II, um, as companies were becoming larger and larger, and particularly U.S. companies were um, increasingly multinational, um, they were distributing their products across the world, particularly in Europe, um, in the context of the Marshall Plan, and the United States was kind of becoming the dominant power in the world, uh, the problem of efficiently moving goods um, became more and more um you know, of concern for, for corporations, and they began to draw upon this knowledge that had been developed in, in the military about how to do that as efficiently uh, as possible. So they take over this kind of military science, and, you know, around the time of the Vietnam War, um, originally, you know, in order to help the war effort, um, the uh, container is, is developed a way of kind of, you know, using these modular boxes in order to ship goods and easily sort them once they are um, delivered, right? The big problem with um, shipping in, in bulk, right, is that you have to have people on the docks who can sort all of the material and carry it out piece by piece. It's much more efficient if you have things already broken down into these containers that can be moved by giant machines. Mm-hmm. Um, and so once that technology uh, spreads after um, the 70s, it really just revolutionizes shipping and it reduces the costs of shipping massively. Um, and what that means is that, um, you know, firms can produce at a greater distance from, uh, their consumers. Um, and it gives an incredible power, uh, to, to capitalist companies to, um, go anywhere in the world seeking out the kind of lowest wages. Um, and also to kind of break down the production of goods into component parts. And so you could source one part from this part of the world, another part from another part of the world. Uh, and it really fragments the production process even more than it was already fragmented. Um, and the consequence, as you said, for, you know, our understanding of the world in which we live in is that, you know, you, you no longer have any sense of where things are coming from, how they're made. Everything is opaque. And it's opaque even to the workers, right, who are producing some some perhaps tiny part for good and they don't actually know where it's going to end up or how they fit into the larger scheme of things. And so we all operate the, we all operate in this kind of space where we don't know where um, the things that we use or consume are coming from. And even the people who are producing um, these goods don't have an understanding of the, the supply chain uh, in full uh, as these supply chains become more and more complex. Mm-hmm. Well, you know what um, struck me and continues to strike me is that uh, the, very, the very capability of moving... Um, production at a whim even, you know, but that it's been kind of freed from the geography of, of having to produce things uh, in situ, you know, or where, wherever your your particular company is supposed to be residing, that you can, with ver- with ease, find proficiencies in in money or you know in efficiencies in in in, in expenditures right by moving uh, production to as you say the place where the wages are lowest and that the wages themselves are uh, such a uh, like a cost factor in production human the human cost of production uh, that it's it's <laughs> it's worth money like you save money 
by shipping pieces and parts here and there and having them put together in other places and, uh, you know, getting your uh, toothpick wood from Japan, uh, you know, breaking it up in, in China, putting it together in Seattle, selling it with a, a box from Vermont, you know, uh, and all this is still cheaper than just making the toothpicks in Seattle right. or whatever. <laughs> but that's right. even if even if the toothpick is you know destined for a consumer in Seattle. That's right. That's right. So it's it's uh, what the the pro- like the thing is that I want it's the cost to the the corporation right to make the product. Along the way are so many other like degradations of the environment. So many other right. wastes. You know, this a waste system that is a proficient economic one, which is confusing in some ways. Absolutely. And, you know, and that's the important thing um, to note here. And it's really an important um, myth that it's, it's really a myth that we need to dispel when we're talking about logistics is that um, this system is only efficient from the point of view of profit. Right. Um, it's true that we can now ship things much more efficiently. Right. We, we waste fewer resources and shipping. And there, there have been um, great efficiencies achieved in, um, in, you know, in, in kind of shipping goods, both moving the ships across the water and, you know, distributing those goods at the port. But really the system is incredibly inefficient. It's wasting resources, right? Which, you know, the consequences of, you know, burning more fossil fuels aren't really factored in in any way because capitalist corporations don't care about that. Um, but then it's the real reason why it's efficient is that it's efficient um, because the wages of the workers who are producing these goods are lower. And that's what enables it to be so highly profitable. Mm-hmm. Um, if everybody were paid the same wage in, in the world, there would be no reason to do this. Mm. And that's a really important point to make, right? It's only... It, it, it's only profitable for the corporations in as much as people are poorer in other places in the world, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, 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 and so it makes no sense outside of capitalism. It's a crazy way to do things. This is Interchange on WFHB. Our show is Planetary Factory on logistics and the violence of market competition with Jasper Burns. Activist, essayist, poet, and managing editor of Commune magazine, Burns points out that the hidden nature of container capitalism has alienated even the revolutionary project. What now can be seen and identified as the targets of disruption and radical change? I think the point that comes out in your piece, too, is the way that it serves uh, a sort of uh, global domination of, of people and places within this trade matrix, you know, so it's it's the way in which you can dominate other peoples in a in a sort of commercial space, you know, in the production space that has nothing to do necessarily with with dominating them by uh, by uh, military force, even if it takes on all the sort of uh, you know definitions that we talk about the military with, you know, and and that is a fascinating thing that I think you say in a couple of places, you know, war or trade is uh, is war by other means uh which yes. struck me struck me as a, you know such an amazing thing to to think about um, mm-hmm. how these two are entangled in many ways and i i think at some point and i think it was in a different a different piece or an extended uh, piece. You, you quote Karl Kotsky on 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 peace and war and the contradictions of of these trade partners, national, international trade partners, and how that that affects things as well. It's just kind of mind boggling the way that things have developed in in the sort of 
commercial capacities, you know, in production capacities. I, yes. And, and, and that, that's something I've, I've been trying to think about more uh, in recent years. You know, I wrote I wrote this essay in uh, 2013 and 2012. Um, and, you know, the world was very different then. This is before the kind of rise of Trump and this right populist um, movement worldwide. Uh, and I've been trying to think about my how how my arguments about logistics apply in this new world where you know Trump is talking about uh, you know engaging in a trade war with China and has you know made some some moves in that direction and wants to build you know a wall along the southern border. Uh, and in some ways, Trump seems like an anti-logistical president, right? It, he's almost a kind of right-wing reaction against uh, neoliberal globalization. Uh, and they, you know, the the kind of increasingly rapid flow of goods around the world, and the kind of linkage of the American economy to you know all of these kinds of productive networks uh, around the world. Um, and I, I actually want to you know cut against that way of understanding um, Trump and understanding logistics, because logistics has always been about uh, protecting national interests, right? It's always been an extension of one kind of national block of 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 capitals and corporations into other kinds of markets, right? Um, and it is this, you know, the, the kind of freeing up of the market is one aspect of it, but really it's a freeing up of the market for competition, right? And competition is, you know, it is violent, right? Certain corporations are trying to dominate other corporations, mm -hmm. and it's not simple kind of leveling of the playing field in any way. Um, and what we get with Trump is less a kind of turn against logistics as such than an attempt to kind of remake um, remake the networks of the world, right? To create new kind of trade corridors and new linkages that maybe, you know, would um, connect the United States to Canada and Russia and, you know, northern um, fossil fuel resources or whatnot, right? That's one That's one kind of future maybe, right? Mm -hmm. It's kind of an attempt to kind of, um, you know, dominate these new resources opened up in the Arctic as everything thaws and an attempt to create those kinds of logistical uh, networks and to kind of wall off um, the United States from from China or whatnot. Um, but there's all, the point is, is that um, logistics always has a process of kind of shutting down certain flows and favoring other flows. I, I, um, I describe it as kind of walled flows, right? Mm -hmm. um, logistics has to kind of securitize um, the, the kind of flow of goods and make sure that they're, they're walled off uh, and regulated. And it's trying to kind of exclude other types of trade networks, right? Certain corporations are trying to monopolize certain, um, you know, flows of goods uh, and, and, and create a wall around their flow. So if you see logistics in that way, then it's really not hard to understand how Trump is less a re reaction against it than a continuation of um, elements that are already, you know, part of the part of the mix. Mm -hmm. It's time for another break. We continue with John Coltrane's Transition. More with Jasper Burns on our Planetary Factory when Interchange returns on WFHB. Stay with us.
Welcome back to Interchange on WFHB. Today's show is Planetary Factory on logistics and the violence of market competition with guest Jasper Burns, poet, activist, political theorist, and managing editor of Commune Magazine. In our final segment, we explore the war on workers via capital logistics and what a revolution can look like when it's the distribution of products that has to be disrupted, even destroyed. Which means when you ask, give us this day our daily bread, where will that bread come from? It's still an abstraction uh, to to try to consider how these flows are, um, you know, product flows, uh, transportation flows, container ships uh, moving in and out of ports with giant machines, uh, the hiddenness of what's inside. All these things then, uh, you know, happen, kind of happen to the world and people. Uh, uh, so they happen to us, right? And one of the issues that you point out is that that these things that are happening state to state, nation to nation, uh, what you call uh, intercapitalist and interstate competition, uh, is a kind of a war fought through and against workers. And it's workers that kind of unite the secular work here and our understanding of of your, to me anyway, your your attempts in this particular essay and and your other work to to find the way in which we counter this logistics, you know, counter this war by trade and, and, and sort of bring it back in focus with what workers are, what's, what's happening to them, what can be done to stop what's happening to them, how to, how to change the world uh, in some way. But the problem here in your piece, and what it seems to be a clear problem, is that it's a planetary factory that we're, we're all a part of now. And so trying to think, how do we disrupt flow? How do we disrupt these logistics and, and this chain of, of this planetary factory is to not is to have to first imagine what happens next in some ways, right? What, what can happen after if you were actually to disrupt it in such a way that it breaks down? Or that you, you, you know, the sort of understanding that you, you're not going to be able to manage this system that is capitalist at its core in a socialistic way or in a communistic way. And that, I mean, there are arguments that you can, of course, but you're arguing, right. you argue against those as well. Correct. Yes, I think you know it's it's a problem um, for labor, and it's a problem for those of us who are communists or socialists or anarchists who are sort of you know take the standpoint of the exploited and the oppressed across the world and kind of imagine that you know any positive uh, change in the way that our societies are are organized is going to come from that kind of revolt and rebellion uh, of those underclasses, and it, it and logistics creates a real problem. Uh, logistics was its main use was in kind of fragmenting workforces and making it harder for them to organize effectively against capital. If you kind of break up a company and you scatter it across the globe, it's very hard for those workers to gather together um, and, and and fight the bosses, especially when the bosses are you know located a thousand miles away or they're behind three different kinds of shell companies or holding companies, or you're, a con- you're working for a contract producer who's making something for Apple, but maybe you don't even know that it's going to Apple, right? Or you're, you're, you're working in a sweatshop and making something uh, for Nike, but maybe you don't even know that it's going to Nike. Um, and so there are practical problems here, and there are epistemological problems. There are problems of knowing um, how these networks work. And, you know, my argument is that this, this kind of logistical 
uh, counter-revolution, as I call it, um, has been, you know, part of what's driven wages to the floor over the last 40 years and, you know, uh, worsened conditions for, you know, everybody uh, across the globe. And so, you know, how do you, how do you begin to resist that? Uh, is very much an open question. Some people uh, like to kind of wave their hands and, and uh, you know, make kind of abstract slogans. Like, we need to create an international kind of in, uh, union of, and structure of solidarity across the globe. And that sounds great, but, you know, what does that actually mean? How do you create those linkages um, between people who are living, um, you know, very different lives and, and, you know, not connected to each other in any kind of way? Um, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's really, it's really unclear, um, how you, how you begin to kind of organize people, um, as workers and in the workplace. And I think increasingly people are going to find it so difficult to organize as workers that even though they are workers, they're going to kind of come to these logistical networks as proletarians as such, just, you know, dispossessed people, um, and they're going to kind of find ways to be effective by disrupting these flows, even if they aren't, you know, the, the workers who who deal with them, right? So mm-hmm. people go and shut down the port, but they're not actually port workers. Or people go down and kind of shut down a rail line, but they're not necessarily the rail workers. And they do that in order to kind of make um, make their grievances felt mm-hmm. and win reforms, um, or you know, even just because they you know are sick of it all and. Yeah. Um, and you know, and I think that, that that's that's the kind of struggle that we're gonna see over the next next few decades. Then of course there's a question of you know what does revolution look like in this um you know in this uh state of affairs. Uh, and that we talked a little bit about that last time, but that there you know, logistics also opens up a whole set of kind of problems around that as well. This is Interchange on WFHB. Our show is Planetary Factory on logistics and the violence of market competition with Jasper Burns. Activist, essayist, poet, and managing editor of Commune Magazine, Burns points out that the hidden nature of container capitalism has alienated even the revolutionary project. What now can be seen and identified as the targets of disruption and radical change? The interesting thing about this is, as you say, to to imagine stopping something, you know, imagine being able to shut down uh, the flow of goods to the supermarket and things of that nature. And then if you could stop it long enough and, and have it actually break down so the particular region you're living in is affected in a way that it, it literally – uh, changes the the way people can even imagine living their lives. They no longer have access to supermarket chicken or something like you know things just stop and you have to then reconfigure your life. It it has to stop for long enough that you you can't fall back into uh, patterns of uh, c- consumption for the most part. And you know that's the interesting thing here is 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 saying that. That has a catastrophic feel to it, right? That has the idea that, you know, for things to change, they have to change drastically in some right. way. And, you know, that's not a reformist idea. That's the idea that things have to, you know, be entirely different um, and then trying to understand what that difference might look like. Um, one thing that you just pointed out, too, that I thought was fascinating, and you mentioned this in the piece as well, that there is an, uh, an existential value to the struggle, right? To being able to see each other, to be in the space of other people uh, mm-hmm. struggling also to 
have this sense of what it means to be a human in an effort with other humans struggling to do a thing, as opposed to the opacity of work, as you said before, the opacity of the, the logistics system, the, the inability to have any uh, particular identity tied to your, your work anymore. I think uh, this is a key point of the article as well, is that you know a baker isn't a baker anymore. It's a person who manages a computer like anything else. So, um, you know, these are the real issues. You no longer have a sense of self uh, that's tied to any sort of work uh, organization. Now, that's maybe good or bad, but I think most of us are are sort of floundering in that that identityless space um, right. and have have had nothing to replace it with. I suppose maybe struggle is is the thing that will give identity back to us. Yeah, that, that's what I think. We've seen, you know, we've seen over the last many decades a, a collapse in what we might call the worker's identity, right? Um, which was the basis of the labor movement, the socialist movement. Uh, people identified as workers, and, they, they, and that meant that they understood themselves as being the people who made the world function, right? And the, the, the core argument of socialism in the 19th and 20th century was, you know, we, the workers, are the people who know how to do things, are the people who actually do things, um, and the bosses are simply parasites, right? We can get rid of them and run things ourselves. What good are they? All they do is kind of take money um, and manage us in ways that are inefficient. Um, and it's really easy to have that standpoint when you have a clear view of the whole kind of totality of the production process and the supply chain. It's much harder to do when you are sort of um, doing some kind of uh, detail work in a supply chain that is mystifying to you. And, um, and that's not the main reason that the worker's identity has collapsed, but it's a part of it. You know, the worker's identity was also supported by um, the whole kind of life world of the working class who kind of lived in a particular neighborhood and there were institutions, there were bars and libraries and social clubs that were kind of oriented toward that identity. And that's all collapsed. Mm-hmm. Um, and as such, people don't really, even though they are workers and though they are proletarians, they don't identify as such. Um, and, you know, and also the other thing is that identifying as a worker was part of a process of gradually winning reforms. And that strengthened the identity, right? It was meaningful to identify as such that meant that you could, you know, struggle for, for a kind of better life. And people's lives did improve, um, you know, during parts of the 20th century in many areas. And that ended up kind of solidifying the worker's identity, right? But there's been so few gains over the last 50 years that people you know, what use is such an identity now? Right. Um, people, um, you know, find more use for identifying as, you know, as Christians or um, mm-hmm. whatever. Yes. And so, right. Or whatever. You know, there's, a million, there's a million different identities that, that uh, and not like these things are, not like these things are exclusive. Of course, many, sure. many workers did identify as Christians and <laughs> that's a big part of the labor movement. Right. Uh, I don't want to single out Christians. No, here, but, okay. um, but of course, you know, religious identification is something that, that comes into um, this space yeah. and it's an alternative for people who have lost uh, you know, other forms of identification. Well, you've said that. That's a resurgence of the particular ways we're, we're reorganizing socially is, again, back into tribal spaces in some ways, right? Yeah, yeah that's, that's been a, an effect of this as well. Uh, as much as anything else, it seems to me that's been 
the big part of this sort of resurgence of, for lack of a better term, right, to to be against another is now the key identifier in most people's lives, right? Absolutely. Uh, And all of the reactionary things that we've seen over the last, you know, few years with the mm -hmm. alt-right, this kind of men's rights movements, these are forms of reactionary identification Mm -hmm. around whiteness or around masculinity that are going to attempt to um, deal with this problem, this kind of crisis of meaning and crisis of identification. And they run into the same problems. I mean, you know, these are people who um, largely live on the Internet and they try to actually meet each other in real life. It's It doesn't work, right, mm-hmm. because there isn't a kind of life world that brings people together around these identities. But, mm-hmm. you know, nonetheless, they try. Yeah. Um, and, you know, thankfully, <laughs> thankfully, the project often fails. Right. But um, yeah, you know, these are these are attempts to kind of get around this problem. Right. You know, we need um, another way to deal mm-hmm. with that. This is Interchange on WFHB. Our show is Planetary Factory on logistics and the violence of market competition with Jasper Burns. Activist, essayist, poet, and managing editor of Commune Magazine, Burns points out that the hidden nature of container capitalism has alienated even the revolutionary project. What now can be seen and identified as the targets of disruption and radical change? So we've had uh, uh, various shows on anarchists here on Interchange, uh, Emma Goldman, most recently uh, Lucy Parsons. Lucy Parsons, a disciple of Johann Most in some ways, right, calling for dynamite to level fields of force employed by capitalists against labor, right, it's the propaganda of the deed. And it's, mm-hmm. it's fascinating that, you know, as we are now in another Gilded Age, that these these things have, have, have begun to have resonance again, right? Uh, right. And now, in, in the sense that you say we've sort of lost capacity as labor to be able to organize for reform or make strikes that make make a difference, even if we can make riot uh, make a difference. We're still stuck in this space where nothing works the way we might be able to understand it. Uh, and at the same time, you point out that logistics in this sort of hyper um, uh, organized way has in itself become another kind of precarity. You know, that the the very logistical systems have points of weakness and that it's interesting to me that, that, that in some ways you might whisper what Lucy Parsons whispered so long ago. Uh, in in Sekula's uh, fish story, the first essay, again, Loads of Fishes, he talks about how dock workers in Barcelona laugh as they load cargo bound for antagonistic destinations. Uh, he says, better to scuttle the ship at the dock, but limpet mines are tools of government, not of workers. Well, this, right. is, this is an interesting possibility at this point too and it's it's been you know we've been pushing ourselves to this place where you think you know what can disrupt in a way that makes a difference but it's a scary thing that happens afterwards i mean yeah. scary to scary to me to me anyway. right of course and i think it's you know I, I think it's scary for anybody and no one would you know we were talking about this the other day no one is going to um intentionally saw off the branch on which they're sitting or let, let's not no one certain many people right. would do it not but most people wouldn't and it's not that's not how it's going to come about it's more going to be a situation in which people are struggling in a kind of breakdown and, and the existing um, institutions are breaking down at the same time um, perhaps as a consequence of the struggle perhaps as a consequence of reaction to struggle you, know, you have capital flight um, and you know these these logistical systems stop functioning, and then people have to find other ways to meet 
their needs. And that might be by kind of, you know, going to the depots and, you know, just taking the resources and redistributing them. But then also, you know, once those goods run out, um, you know, finding other ways to, to meet their needs more directly um, in the absence of, you know, uh, trade. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, it's not going to be that, you know, suddenly, you know, a, a movement decides to just, you know, stop the net, stop the kind of flow of, of oil and um, food, etc. No one would do that. That would be suicidal. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and, and yeah, you know, I mean, I do think sabotage is a part of that, especially when it's done um, in, in a massive way. I think that we've seen, um, you know, we've seen uh, movements in that direction in our time. I, I talked earlier about the no dapple struggle in Standing Rock, um, you know, and that was a blockade. Of, of circulation and of a kind of logistical network. The blockade is a new tactic that has emerged um, in, in our age or reemerged as a kind of prominent tactic um, of struggles, uh, a way for them to make themselves uh, effective. Um, but, you know, along that goes sabotage. And there was sabotage in, in um, you know, in, in South Dakota. Um, and that's a part of, you know, that's a part of, you know, a response to these logistical narratives. At the same time, I really think that it's incredibly important to recognize what a different era we live in. Mm -hmm. um, it's not the era of Lucy Parsons and the, the repressive and surveilling power of the state is so great mm -hmm. that any turn to kind of armed struggle um, and kind of small sort of, you know, the, the fantasy of the fantasy of some small um, group of kind of, gorillas or monkey wrenchers being able to kind of on their own, um, you know, sabotage the machinery. Mm -hmm. um, I think that that is a fantasy that, that belongs in the past. It's just not possible. I mean, there's really no way to do that without being found out these mm -hmm. days. Mm -hmm. Power of the state to kind of locate people is so great. And so really, if we're going to, if we're going to, you know, affect these networks, we're going to have to be massive. It's going to have to be a huge number of people, so many people that it's impossible to kind of identify the, the wrongdoers, as it were, right. uh, you know, and and just anything that, you know, anything that can be categorized by the state as terrorism um, is, you know, really, I, I think, a dead end. And I'm, you know, I'm very concerned about the way that the FBI kind of, you know, traps entraps people um, and gets them to do, you know, stupid things uh, and then drums up cases around it. We've seen that um, a lot in the past, you know, especially with, um, you know, sort of Muslim uh, so-called radicals, uh, right. but there's no reason that it can't be used, um, and ha you know, with, with, uh, you know, left radicals, uh, and it has been used and, you know, probably will be in the future. So, um, it's, it's something to be really, you know, careful around. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, here we are again, again, not having exactly any clue what, what, to, <laughs> what to do. Uh, but, you know, as you said, as we talked last time, um, you know, about the, the sort of the future of, of, of food as much as anything else will give us a, a hint as to how we, we maybe think of local organization that begins to build a different kind of world. And maybe that has something in it for us. Um, Can I read you this, this passage from Brecht's? Um, that I think is really relevant, sure. uh, fascinating. And he says, uh, no one, neither well-known writers on economics nor business people. I traveled from Berlin to Vienna after a broker who had worked all his life at the Chicago Exchange. No one could explain the processes of the wheat exchange to me adequately. I won the impression that these processes were simply inexplicable. 
i.e. not to be grasped by reason, i.e. unreasonable. The way the world's wheat was distributed was simply incomprehensible. From every point of view except that of a handful of speculators, this grain market was one big swamp. There's a poem which I can't locate, um, and I don't know the phrase exactly, but he basically takes this thought and he says, you know, no one will be able to explain a wheat market to a child in the communist future. It will simply be, you know, incomprehensible to anybody living in a society other than ours that you would organize distribution in this insane way. That's our show. Again, we've been listening to John Coltrane's Transition, recorded in 1965. Coltrane is accompanied by McCoy Tyner on piano, Jimmy Garrison on bass, and Elvin Bishop on drums. Thanks to Jasper Burns for joining us a second time to extend the conversation on the hiddenness of capital flows. What's in all those steel boxes? And the difficulty of even knowing what a revolutionary project has to target. Coming up on Interchange... Conversations about the thought and culture of the Communard Uprising of 1871 in Paris and how it resonates with the motivations and actions of contemporary protest, the Yellow Vest movement in France, radio, state, power, and the Cold War in Angola, and the necessity of being anti-fascist. Thanks for listening. I'm Doug Storm, host and producer of Interchange. Sean Milligan edited today's program. Stay tuned for the Jazz Menagerie, coming up next on your community radio station, WFHB. WFHB.